UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Curry Hicks Sage. I am the host of the UMass Basketball Podcast. I am coming to you live tonight, March 18th, Monday, March 18th, the day after Selection Sunday, 2019. We are recording our first episode in approximately three weeks. We have a lot to talk about. And for the first time in a while, I am joined in real time by our dynamic producer in our nation's capital, the Bennett Carroll. Cal, our one-time co-host, is, I presume, in Boston or the Boston suburbs, but we haven't had him in a while. And I actually haven't had Bennett in a while in the recent episodes in January and February, and I apologize for the pace of programming being dialed back a bit in the wake of so many difficult losses and there just not being a whole lot more to say uh, once that streak was kind of in full effect. But Bennett would actually just take the audio and chop it up afterwards and I would record a lot of that solo. So it is great to have him back. We are using a new recording program tonight to uh, maximize your listening experience. Hopefully it's better than some of the past episodes. Bennett, Great to have you back. Good to be back. Good to uh, have my schedule kind of mellow out a little bit and make me able to get on here. And I'm just happy to uh, happy to be a part of it again, Sage. Beautiful. So before we get into the bulk of the show, I'm going to start on a bit of a sad note and not just sports stuff. This is real life stuff. And uh, it's something I, I had not uh, shared the details of on the show. And I'm I'm actually a little, still a little reluctant to talk about it, but I want to just get this out in the open because all season long for actually more than 52 weeks, I started saying, uh, you'll recall anyone who follows me on Twitter at Curry Hicks Age, I would say uh, beginning today, I would say, I would say at 55 weeks from today, the UMass basketball team will be cutting down nets at the Barclays Center. I would say that every single Sunday. The origin story of it, the beginning of it, and I'll get to the sad part in a moment, but the, the origin story of it began after last year's late February overtime loss to George Mason, a game I actually was at with Bennett, as well as a friend of the show, C.H. Davis, and a couple others, I believe. Uh, UMass fan 33, friend of the show, was there as well. He sat right behind the bench, right next to then high school senior Trey Wood, actually. And UMass lost a heartbreaker, you'll recall. They kind of gave up a last-second lead and lost by one despite playing with, like, four scholarship players that night because uh, Pipkins was hurt. But the effort was so good, and I was so inspired by the effort, that in a parking lot, in Crofton, Maryland, about 30, 35 minutes out of um, 
DC and probably an hour and change from Fairfax where the game was played. I was literally waiting for a pizza and tweeting about the game. It was one of the most emotional losses in a weirdly encouraging way where you're just like, they fucking really played hard. And I was kind of thrilled and I'm tweeting and tweeting and tweeting on this long ass Twitter bender. You know how I can, I can be, it's a little, little gratuitous. And at the end, I say something like, and 54 weeks from tonight, it might've been 55, might've been 56. I don't remember the exact tweet. Go back and find it. The UMass basketball team will be cutting down nets at the Barclays center. Cause I believed that we were well positioned for the following season to make a real run once we had a full roster. And I was so inspired by that performance. So fat. So I kept doing that in the off season, like into April and May fast forward ahead a little, I think it must've been like late June. We got the news that my wife was pregnant again and the due date we short, we learned shortly thereafter was March 20th, this coming week, two days from today, which was of course, three days after the Atlantic 10 tournament. So in my mind, this whole off season, it was like, in my mind, I'm, I'm like, not only is UMass winning the UMass is going to win the Atlantic 10 tournament, like the day my child, my second child is born. So I'm like, so I'm like, I'm like thinking this is going to be the like picture perfect film. And it's like this whole thing is going to, or, or like even it could be funny where like UMass wins and I'm in the hospital and I can't see it because of course that's how it happens for UMass fan. I had like all these funny scenarios or like, you know, fucking, Lawan hits a three and I'm going to have to name my second born Pipkins or something. Right. Well, some of you will recall, I took a couple days off Twitter in late November and I never really got into the details. I was just like, yeah, I lost someone. I'm sad, whatever. The tragic thing I've never shared in the program and that I frankly wasn't ever really planning to, but got so many like one-liners about like, oh, you guys didn't make the fucking, you didn't make the Sunday thing. And I was just like, all right, I just got to get this out there. Is that we lost the kid in late November at five and a half months, had to go through with the labor. Definitely like the most difficult thing I've probably dealt with. Um, it's grief is, as I said at the time, is very weird. It's not a linear process. Like I was like devastated completely, but then like I wanted to return to normalcy. So I did my show that week, which was like sort of odd, but it just, the point is that, um, we lost the kid. And, uh, so this is a hard week and those, those Sundays doing it became harder and harder throughout the year because it wasn't aligned with the kid anymore. So like the joy of it was sort of sucked out, but I wanted to try throughout the season to just like find that. And when you combine how shitty a season it was and that like the winter just got progressively shittier and I don't want to like quickly segue to basketball, but you know, that is supposed to be a fun distraction and it wasn't the, uh, the ideal <laughs> season to, to be getting over a really devastating thing. So life goes on. I have an amazing almost three-year-old and that's, uh, the greatest source of joy in my life. And, uh, you know, 
if you want, you know, I, I, I don't know what my wife would think about me telling this story. So I'm a little reluctant to go on too much greater, greater length out of respect for her. But I wanted people to know that all year, like that was kind of the origin story of why I did the every week thing. And um, that didn't come to fruition um, on either end, obviously. <laughs> so that's that's that. And it's if you want to keep cracking the how many how many months left or how many weeks till we cut down the nets thing like be my guest i'm i'm it's kind of a dick move but just understand that that's partly was the inspiration um for for keeping that going for a while and then it wasn't exactly one that every week i looked forward to there were weeks after we beat providence or whatever where it, it, it gave me a you know gave me a, a shot of shot of life again and i was excited to do it but that's that's the backstory so let me just uh take a deep breath and move into the pre-show stuff before we get to hoops i want to intentionally before we go back to another uh you know shitty frankly somewhat shitty subject not anywhere near as shitty as that and that's why it's been easy to talk about comparison. Uh, but let's just talk about some good things. So Bennett, uh, you're, you're hockey first guy. You are, uh, yes. You know, it's funny that you host the, you, you co you produce a show, but you're a hockey first guy. And yes. I, you may have noticed added a reference to UMass hockey in my Twitter bio this week, because I am that excited. I, I don't know much about the sport. I have watched a couple of games now or parts of games. Mostly I just like talking shit to regional rivals. I find <laughs> hockey, I find hockey East Twitter, particularly like, like personal and fun and just like people really mix it up. I think a 10 Twitter is great, but it's very much about the basketball and the institutions are kind of a strange hodgepodge. So it's a little bit like more difficult to earnestly Look, rivalries are all about, and the expression, the narcissism of small differences comes to mind, right? Rivalries in many ways are often between institutions that to one degree or another have great similarities. And so in the A-10, some of the rivalries, like a 1700 persons Franciscan school in Olean, New York and UMass really aren't, the only thing that connects them is basketball. And that's great. And I love that. But the straight shit talking to re to other schools in the Northeast satellite, or excuse me, uh, satellite. Yes, that's true. Satellite Massachusetts universities and flagship state universities, plus, you know, some, some private schools in the Boston area. It just makes for a lot of fun. And this weekend, as I said on Twitter is the stuff that a UMass fan snuff film is made of <laughs> U UMass and the three private Boston institutions, Northeastern BC and BU respectively, getting it on for a right to be hockey East champs. It is, I mean, I think the turnout of UMass fans is going to be historic and just out of control. And it will be, it may be only 50% of the total fans, but it will be 80% of the crowd size and noise. If, if we don't get out for this, we don't get out for anything. And I, it's a perfect storm. I mean, it's the late game. It against BC in Boston, neutral site, you know, epic year. I mean, it's just like, it's a storybook 
frozen uh, well not frozen forward it's a it's a storybook semi-final scenario and uh, i really wish i could be there in part the, the stuff i talked about at the outset of the episode uh we're getting the hell out of here this weekend we're gonna go to miami and just fuck it and go to the beach because we don't want to think about shit but uh i wish i was there and i hope you guys all have a fucking outstanding time and i'm seeing stuff on twitter people buying 16 tickets and yeah. eight tickets it's just going to be awesome so live it up it's a take awesome pictures post them all over twitter and uh just win just win uh it's funny with the with who's in there it's literally it's this is being i'm a pro wrestling man this is booked like pro wrestling you're stuck in there with the three three of your biggest demons because you and Look, I was, you know, Northeastern's a three. There is no question in my mind that this is fake because I know BC and BU are going to be the two mammoths UMass has to conquer to win their first Hockey East title. I wish I could be, I could go. I, I've already between Passover and asking off potentially for the Frozen Four, fingers crossed. I cannot take off more time than I already am, so I can't make it out. I'll be yelling my ass off. From Silver Spring, Maryland. Are you working during the game? Uh, no. Uh, Friday, yes. Saturday, I wouldn't. But again, I'm taking off in April. Potentially taking off three or four weekends that I normally work. So it's it's tough right. for me to get anything more off. Um, but yeah, this has been a season. I mean, it's been unbelievable. The one point I have to make with with Hockey East Twitter, I think the big difference between A10 and Hockey East is. A10 at the end of the day, all these teams are still in a similar position. Like VCU might be ranked one year, but like there's not really that much of it. You know, there's not a huge gap compared to even if they're having a down year. BC and BU are, you know, the equivalent of the Blue Bloods, and UMass has never won a conference. So it's it's that thing where when UMass beats BC and BU, I am gonna spend an hour on Twitter retweeting every dumbass fan going, oh, well, you know, they're all drunk or, oh, you know, they haven't scored through two periods. And that's, it's just that level of the the definition of the little brother. While Lowell may be our little brother in everything at this point, uh, although they beat us in hockey, it's not the point. Uh, in hockey, UMass is a little brother to the BUs, the BCs, the Northeasterns, all these schools and this is the chance to finally go, hey, we're taking over. I cannot wait to see that crowd. Thankfully, I have a friend who's given me his login info so I can watch it on Nets and Plus, even from all the way down here. It's going to be insanity. UMass wins. Uh, that double overtime game last weekend, they had the double overtime win against UNH. And then you want to talk about a snuff film. The first period of that UMass New Hampshire game. My goodness. Uh, this team is coming in. They are rearing. They are ready to go. They are hot. Uh, just take these games down. I don't want to lose another game until like November. Like fucking roll through this shit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, sorry, keep going, Ben. I don't that's to that's you basically, you know, that's basically it. Roll this, roll through these shitty rich kids. No one likes them. BC is not even in fucking Boston. End it. And they're not good this year, BC, which is interesting. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of awesome because 
BC and VU in particular, like they've been to the garden so many times. Plus they have the bean pot every year. So this really on some level, you know, they have their core fans, but it's not that big a deal for them this year. Cause I mean, it is whatever, but it's such a big deal for UMass, but it's yeah. not just a big deal because UMass got there. It's, it's a big deal because UMass is the team to beat there. So it's not like, we're going in and people are like, oh, UMass is kind of making a fun run. Like, let's uh, let's go see the old old state U. This is something that has built for, I mean, in a certain sense, it's been building since uh, the end that Vermont series last year yeah. in hockey in hockey East. But really, since the start of the season when they took down Ohio State, who was number one at the time in like the opening weekend or second weekend, basically the momentum has just been building and building and building. And at this point. It is, to me, the closest analog to what we saw in the mid-90s with UMass basketball. Not as big because it's just not the same, not nearly not the same sport, sport yeah. nationally. But in terms of, like, the kind of, like, the, the, the fan base here, there's a lot of home games. And the fan base, particularly the students, they know the players. They know, you know, they know the storylines. They know the narratives. I think there's a tendency for the casual UMass fan to, like, show up at a big game and be excited about their state university. But this feels even among like outside the world of kind of the diehard UMass Twitter crowd, like this feels like a team that has been wholeheartedly embraced by basically anyone associated with UMass athletics, anyone who follows the program or any of its programs, even peripherally. I mean, I am not a hockey guy and I've been pretty much like I check, you know, constantly refresh Twitter when they're playing on a Friday or Saturday night. And that's something I never would have done in the past. Like I can name six, seven player, eight (laughs) players on this team. Let's see how many I could do. I could do McCarr. One. Lindbergh. Yep. Um, Leonard. Yep. Um, Murray is the other goalie. Yep. Uh, tr- there's like a Travado or a Trevingo. Trevino. Trevino. You, it's, it, you got the you got the spelling right, basically. There's a there's a there's a Del Gaizo. There there are two Del Gaizos. Oh, really? Didn't know yeah, that. There's there's a there's a Pritchett. Pritchard. Pritchard. What's the first name? I'm blanking on uh, Jacob. Is it okay? I was gonna say Luke. I don't know why. Both biblical. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, but like here's give, give me a hint. Give me a hint. Give me just give me a hint on, on like any, a, on any on player. A, oh, uh, who's the other kid who has like thirty goals? Who's a senior? Maybe transfer. Oh, uh, that there. I was gonna give you uh, airplanes. Oh that, wait, Ferraro. Did I say Ferraro? Fer- Ferraro was the other one I was gonna give you a hint on. Airplanes that are that keep crashing. Boeing. Brett Boeing. I don't know him though. Who's the He's, one who has all the goals? Who's from St. Lawrence? Um, Adam, I'm blanking on his. I see. I've got the players, and I understand. I can't go. Oh, he was from here. Uh, I'm pulling up no, the one from St. Maybe Lawrence. he's not from St. Lawrence. I thought there was a stud from from that came with him. Uh, Jacob Pritchard. That's who it was. It was Pritchard. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but so I'm just to to compare to you. Uh, if I go, if I uh put UMass into the search bar on my Chrome. The first result is the UMass hockey schedule because that is how I can find if I can watch the game, if I have to illegally stream it, if I can legally stream it, however I can watch it. That's the first result for UMass. If you know anything about me, as you understand, 
UMass is a major part of my life. Uh, so this team is just uh, like you, you, you kind of said. It's it's not just they're there. I think if last year's team had made a run to the to the it would have been guard, fun. It right, been it would have been. Hey, you know, hey, so we lose the first game, not a big deal. Hey, we're just happy to be here. This team, it's I'm not just if they lose Saturday Friday night, I'm going to be devastated. If they lose Saturday, I'm going to be devastated. This team has all the momentum in the world. They're the best team here. This is no longer about being the, you know, the team that hasn't made it. This is about this is the best team here. They need to get this W. And well, it's also w. that they've and they've they've they come in. They play with such an edge and a set of and a set of expectations where it's like they went down 3-0 the other day. They won the game. Like they just are a different. There's a different mentality around that program right now. And what I was gonna say about the if it was last year, I think that's where you get kind of like the diehard UMass Twitter people and like the the sort of second tier of fans who are like, Oh yeah, I'll check it out. Like I love UMass. I'll go to this. But, th- but this year it's like, people are making plans. People yeah. are planning with like, many people, many thousands of people. And I think, you know, the BC, the BU, the Northeastern programs, they're going to have their diehards there. They're going to have their pockets. They're, they're 2000 fans or 3000 fans or whatever it is, but you, the bulk of the arena and plus any casuals. Cause I assume that's the sort of event where like random main fans are there in jerseys and like, New Hampshire fans like I feel like it's a good story for college hockey UMass so it's it's the you know it's the it's an exciting time and um Carville is is obviously just phenomenal and uh I I I really do relish you know seeing I really do I can't wait to see just like the photos of just like masses of maroon in Mm -hmm. in the arena um, my one, and- my one thought is, is what you were saying with the, how, if they had made it last year as a, my freshman year was the final four NIT run. And that's kind of the way I think it would yeah, have been. Yeah. It's, it's, Hey, I, I live in New York. I guess I can go out for the night. Sure. Oh, they're playing, who are they they're playing Stanford? Oh, that's cool. I don't know. You know, don't know anyone on the team, but sure. They're in the area it, versus like if when they made that tournament run, let's say they were a little bit hotter. Coming into the NCAA, coming into the even the A10 tournament, you were you would have gotten tons flowing in. It's just it's another level. I mean, like this is this is a team that it's you know Bucci tweets a lot about college hockey. This is a team that whenever they play a game, they're getting two or three tweets a night from Bucci going, "Wow, they're doing this! Wow, they're doing it's this team's taking off. I love it. Uh, I got my my college hockey hat uh, in my room right now." Uh, I just, I'm excited. I really want to be, I really want to have to confirm with my bosses that I'm taking off and driving to Buffalo for three days. And the other thing I want to say just about college hockey in general is like, it's a little bit of a niche thing. Obviously it's not, it's not the kind of thing that the man on the street knows, but regionally, particularly in the Boston area, I mean, in many ways that is college hockey center, epicenter, college hockey's epicenter. I mean, that is like, so the stage for this event is a really cool and unique one. And it's one that kind of, you know, it is the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, but it, it, it captures at least the, this little slice of the universe pretty fully. It feels like I remember watching as a UMass was in the semis once when I was, I want to say I was in like, 
high school or freshman or college, not in 07. It was the, didn't they appear once before in like 03 or 04? I think so. Let me check quickly. And there was like a multiple overtime game. I want to say against Maine or UNH at, at the garden. I, th- I think Jonathan Quick was there. I remember mm-hmm. watching it and it just being mesmerizing. Like it was such an exciting game. And, uh, and yeah, and- it was, it was 03, 04. Uh, they yeah. lost to Maine in the Hockey East Finals. Okay, so I was – what was the score? 2-1 in triple overtime. Yeah, okay. That's the game I'm talking about. Exactly. So that's a perfect example. I was a senior in high school in Western Mass, and I, I literally remember where I was. I was, in, I was in a kid who I just talked to. He was a buddy of mine just before the show. I was talking to him in his basement, and that game was on. It was awesome. It was an awesome, awesome sporting event. And, like, I didn't know shit about hockey at that point. So – um I guess, was that maybe the year when like Thomas Polk was there and I went to a BC game? It was like sold out, white out night. Anyway, try to see if I can find it. But the it's, point is that like it's a, it's a tremendous moment in the college hockey calendar. And it's one that I think lends itself perfectly to a UMass takeover of the garden because these other schools are, are there so frequently that I don't think, and frankly, BC and BU weren't really supposed to be there this year. So I suspect their fan bases aren't quite as primed. Uh, maybe if they make the final, BU's would be. BC's don't really travel anyway, even if it's in Boston. So I expect UMass to be – if there, if that place fits 18,000 for hockey, let's say, maybe let's say 18,000, I do think it'll sell out. And I think the second game will have a, a minimum 10,000 UMass. Like, I really believe that. I believe there'll be 10,000 UMass fans there. Yeah. And if it's not, it's it's seventy five hundred, and they're loud as shit. Yeah. So anyway, we could talk hockey all day, but that's not what the program is about, unfortunately. It's well, look, it I mean, look, it's we're a hockey school at this point, so we yeah, will get a spin off show. It's certainly hard to argue that at the moment. We are a absolutely UMass is absolutely a hockey school at the moment. All right, let's get into basketball. So the end of the season sucked. The last time we had a show was after the St. Joe's win, a game I attended. It was very exciting. That ended up being the second to last win of the year. The last win being a nice senior night performance two weeks ago, almost three weeks ago? No, two weeks ago against Richmond. UMass uh, playing very impressively and putting up like 87 points and once again providing fans with a faint glimmer of hope that they could make a run in the Atlantic 10 tournament. If not a run, I I don't want to say run, but I think win two games. They promptly went down to Rhode Island and we won't relive that first half, 54 to 25 at halftime. UMass loses by 19 was the final. Uh, not terribly good shooting Rhode Island team. Hung 94 points on them. And they entered the Barclays Center three days later in the first game of the 2019 Atlantic 10 tournament. A game I attended and... It was great seeing a lot of the friends of the show there. We I sat with like friends of the show, Kevin Glazer. I want to shout them all out. R. Sitchman on Twitter. Met Stu Ludicky, who's been a guest on the show who I'd never met in real life. 
Eric Friedlander and my buddy, the professional gambler I've told you all about, former corporate suit who built a quantitative model and never looked back and uh, lived in Vegas. And that's why I was out there seeing when I met Cal for one of the first times at the Vegas tournament. Anyway, it was a fun crew. If I'm missing anyone, I apologize. But the game sucked. Uh, actually, it opened up, up brilliantly, and then it was just absolute dog shit. And I don't even – I'm not even here to rehash the season. It's over. But also, I'm not here to ha- rehash the season because there is so much happening with the off season by virtue of – or as a result of, I should say, the awful season itself. So the GW game to end it, terribly officiated, terribly disappointing – Utterly absurd turnovers, careless mistakes, the same things that that plagued this team all season. And this time led to a four-point overtime loss. That's it. Season over. Over. We look forward to the next milestone set of moments, which was today. And that's why we decided we had to have a show today. Because a lot happened today. We knew that today was going to be kind of Black Monday, if you will. Um... Uh, and that is because I think I'm stealing that phrase from uh, the Twitter handle coaching changes, which uh, basically it's, tracks. It's, it's an NFL term. That's where it's where it comes. Is from. it because it's the is Monday it? after week 17. OK, that's when so coaches bl- get fired. Yeah. So a lot of coaches getting fired today. A lot of personnel moves happening and UMass no different. So let's start in the morning. First or afternoon, really. First news that came in was that unique McLean was transferring for some reason that there were people, you know, on this show speculating that, uh, that, that, that was like not going to happen. And I always was like, no, that's going to happen. I mean, I don't, I'm, I was, it didn't surprise me one iota. I have long said unique is unique player. I wish him the absolute best. I don't think, you know, as I said, he played well down the stretch this year, but He's the kind of guy who needs to play 25 minutes to make an impact, but probably doesn't make sense playing 25 minutes to begin with. So it's kind of a, you know, I, I think it's UMass will be fine. Uh, I wish him the best of luck. I hope he does great wherever he goes. And I thank him for his his time in the UMass uniform. He came in as a Derek Kellogg recruit, very challenging, you know, to adapt to a new coach, especially after having redshirted his freshman year under Kellogg. Uh, he is going to graduate in three years, and I hope he gets two great years. At uh, a, you know, I, I would not be surprised if we saw him at LIU Brooklyn. By the way, just throwing that out there. Okay, then Luan Pipkins made it official, which we'd already known from his Snapchat twelve days ago. Jeff Goodman, the national college basketball reporter, was like, "Per sources, uh, Luan Pipkins will transfer," and it's like, dude, some guy on Twitter by the name of like Boss. Sports News 2 broke that like 12 days ago. So um, that was kind of funny. But Pip, at one point, I think he had a hashtag there. It was a little little obnoxious. But it was like, did you see the hashtag he used? It was like, I'm leaving or something. And then it was like, hashtag, you probably already knew. Or like, you already, you know, if you didn't already know or something like that. Whatever. Uh, he's gone. So Jalen Franklin, the walk-on, had announced that he was gone as well, which was peculiar for a 
walk-on who only played home games to announce that he was no longer playing next year prior to the season ending. But do you, man. Kids love to get their announcement in, and who am I to take shots? Uh, they worked hard and do what you want to do. So uh, now, then the big news came. And that was broken by Zoomass, the Barstool-affiliated on-campus Twitter handle that had the story correct uh, around 5.30 today that all three of UMass's assistants, assistant coaches, were let go uh, today by McCall. So a complete gutting of the staff. Um, I mean, literally has to hire a completely new staff. Those are all guys he hired. None were left over from the Kellogg era. And that's a big thing. I mean, I don't know in my time following college basketball if I've ever seen a complete staff overhaul. But I will say this, and I'll I'll get to this when we get to comments tonight. My my, my sort of reflexive response there is I think if you're going to get rid of two you might as well get rid of three kind of thing you know what i mean like just blow it up you know if you're if you're going in that route already fuck it you know and and i say that with great empathy toward those who lost their jobs today i do not and never will root for anyone to lose their job i mean even when kellogg was gone i was like don't be a dickhead on the way out anyone you know i always said like it sucks man it fucking sucks losing your job it just sucks and and have some empathy Cliff Warren, Rasheen Davis, and Pete Gash. These are professionals. These people have families. Um, it's not easy. It's stressful, just like it is in any other profession. And, you know, I, I think you feel that even more acutely when you follow a program of the size of UMass where this stuff is – it's not a family here, but it's small enough that this isn't like – this. these people are people. You know, you see them on Twitter with their – 1600 followers or whatever this is not you know the nfl so um take a moment to humanize the situation and and hope those guys get jobs elsewhere um i had had doubts about this staff um from the beginning i think i i think if you go back and listen to my you know answers about questions about the staff when mccall was hired I, i think you'll 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 hear a touch of reticence in my voice. I I never was convinced that the composition of this staff collectively made a whole lot of sense. And I think it's not. I think a lot of assembling a staff, like in any environment, is is about how it meshes together. It's more. It's sort of a sum of its parts thing. A sum, you know, the sum is greater than the or the the group is greater than the sum of its parts kind of deal. And it just, I never quite got it uh, because I didn't, I didn't see that the staff was uh, sufficiently different from McCall or it, it just was unclear. It, look, hindsight's twenty twenty, but, and, and I, I never want to make a podcast that speculates at length about assistant coaches and blah, blah, but some of the stuff with regard to culture and the things that Matt has, has expressed frustration about, like it or not, some of that falls to the staff. It, 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 it starts with the head coach. And if he 
hired poorly to begin with, well, that's on him. But it took him a while, and, it may, and maybe it took him too long to figure it out. Maybe last year's sort of surprising success, and it's relative success based on expectations and having five or six scholarship players, not absolute success in terms of like outcomes. But last year's success kind of maybe made us not question anything with respect to the composition of, of the staff. And this year it was exposed and more glaring. And I think that it just felt like, and maybe this, maybe we'll find out that this was all Matt's fault. You know, I mean, some of it does remain to be seen, but I think that going in a new direction and, 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 and surrounding yourself with the new people um, is, is an interesting approach. And I, I support it. Uh, there's not a whole lot to say beyond that. I, if I'm wrong, I'll be the first one to say it. But I, I, I'm okay with moving in a different direction. Um, if more facts come to light that, you know, contradict the narrative I'm saying right now, then I'm going to share those as well. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to say hello a couple times to, to, to Rasheen Davis, who I really liked. Um, but I also don't know the staff intimately well enough. So it's, it's hard to say what goes on behind closed doors. And I think, unfortunately, for better or for worse, the way this business goes, is you kind of just got to defer to the head coach there. And then if he fucks up after, well, then we know it's on him. But that was big news. And now we're waiting for more shoes to drop. Uh, I think we are all expecting more guys to go. Uh, now we know that the three guys who are committed for next year are all set and ready to go because Holloway is gone, his eligibility being having been exhausted, and then McLean and Pip are gone. But they're actively still recruiting. Matt is actively still recruiting, and that means more guys are going to go. I mean, if we're going to speculate here it seems pretty clear that Kalea Turner Morris will likely be gone and play much this year or last year and just you know I like the kid but it doesn't seem like he'll be back you have to assume that Curtis Cobb is not going to be back um he shut it down pretty early this year I guess due to injury and uh you know Matt expressed frustration about him thinly veiled but you know pretty clearly at points and sat him for team rules things and then i think it'll be interesting to see what happens with jonathan laurent and trey wood i think both those guys showed great signs this year but you also heard in press conferences and around the program things about whether those guys were um sufficiently bought in i'm not saying they were were not i think that it was clear from the way in which matt used them that he was both pleased and frustrated with them at different points, but more so than other players. So those are the two question marks. I expect Carl Pierre to be back. I expect Keon Clairgo to be back because I do not believe he's uh, eligible to graduate yet. And he, I think he's been a great, good fit here. He was terrific in the A-10 final, or excuse me, in the final A-10 game uh, against George Washington. I expect Pierre, so I expect Diallo to be back. I, I think and hope Cy Chapman will be back. And I think Kieran Hayward will be, will be back because I also don't think he's eligible to graduate and I don't think he'd want to transfer again. And then um, Baptiste will be back. But assuming those other two are gone, that means there's two more spots and I suspect at least one more will be gone. So I suspect we'll see 
at least three more players uh, that we don't know of right now coming to UMass next year. So a lot's going on. We'll try to keep you posted as things move forward. Um, but what, you know, I want to just say in light of all this news, I have been both fortunate and kind of like it's kind of misfortune in that through as a result of the show and as a result of the sort of passion I, I've showed for the shown for the program over the years and on Twitter, particularly in the last year or two, and kind of reached a fever pitch in the last few weeks, like the DMs are out of control these days. I mean, people are sliding in the DMs and I'm not boasting here because God knows like um, I am, you know, I, I'm not boasting here. I'm just because like I'm the first one to, to, to make fun of myself, as you guys know, but the DMs are out of control and the texts are out of control in terms of the volume of people who are trying to use, and I don't say this is a bad thing. I, I absolutely enjoy it. Like I'd be lying if, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm something of a UMass basketball narcissist. I, I like the attention when it comes to this because I enjoy talking about this program and, you know, you could, you could call that a form of mental illness, but it is what it is. So uh, don't get me wrong. I love that everyone's sliding in the DMs, but the volume has been through the roof in the last few weeks. I mean, the amount of rumors and scoops, you know, alleged and otherwise are just like it's reached a fever pitch here. Like today I got two different people, one who I know, one who I don't, I mean, I know like Twitter, but never met with the same scoop about all three coaches being gone. And I was like, Hmm, like it seemed legit. And I was like, should I post this? Should I break this? I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not really totally in the scoop business here. Like I don't hold myself out as a legitimate reporter, nor really do I ever want to on in this, at least in this context. And five minutes later, Zoomass had it. So like they were, you know, these sources were right. But then other times I've had people sliding in with just like totally out of, out of left field rumors and stuff that, you know, I, I poke around, it doesn't check out. Some people I'm talking to are very closely connected to the program. Others are mm, several steps removed and you don't quite know. That being said, like everybody's got a little bit of an agenda and it's, you know, I'm trying to be as responsible as I can and, and triple check things, even though I don't hold myself to, you know, like a crazy high standard. I, I don't want to push it out there. That's just preposterous. So keep sending stuff. It's interesting. And here's the, takeaway from all of it that I've come to from both people's perspectives, you know, flowing into the inbox and also from just observing things and having watched college hoops and UMass in particular now for 25, 26 years. UMass as a program, and this is kind of like the central thing I think I wanted to get at with this show tonight, is genuinely, and I don't just say this because it's the one program I follow with this level of closeness. I think is genuinely, and there are other programs in a similar spot, but is genuinely in a unique predicament in the sense of its identity within the broader college basketball landscape. And I say that, let me be more specific. There are two types. Well, there's really like four types of programs, but first you have your low majors, you know, from the Patriot League 
to the SWAC and kind of, you know, a handful of other conferences, you know, 100, 100, 150 teams in that band of teams that are just straight up low major one bid leagues. You go there to try to get to a mid major if you're a head coach. And there's the higher, the high, sort of high end of that, which is like a UT Chattanooga where McCall came from. That's actually even pretty, like, pretty mid major, I would say at that point, because they have like that's the league Wofford's in. They got a seven seed, so it's maybe not a great exa- example. But you have kind of your low major programs, and that's what it is. That's not where UMass is. Then you have your high major programs, your Power Fives, and the way you win there is, you know, you. Um, you just you get high quality players and a high quality coach and you get the resources and you you compete you win whatever so then you have the middle and and by the way this applies for some high major schools sort of the bottom tier high majors that succeed like a texas tech would be a good example but so within this band of let's say 100 schools uh atlantic 10 schools the, the low end of the high majors, uh, you know, uh, WCC schools, Gonzaga notwithstanding, um, Mountain West schools, things of, you know, the programs of that sort of caliber, the lower, the sort of middle to lower half of the American, et cetera. There's two ways that you can win at those programs, I've concluded. And I'll, I'll, this is all going to get back to UMass in a second. One way is basically talent. And if you're not at high, high major and you want to get talent, you sometimes have to go after talent that's maybe not high major with respect to its prospects for your internal team culture. And the second way to win is culture. And it's to identify, it's the Mark Schmidt model at at St. Bonaventure. And the juxtaposition between these two approaches was on pitch-perfect display in the Atlantic 10 championship game. On the one hand, you had St. Louis, coached by former UMass coach Travis Ford, who then went on to Oklahoma State, underachieved, and, you know, after eight years sort of bolted for, I think, eight eight years or so for, for St. Louis. So Travis Ford, I think... It's pretty clear anyone on A10 Twitter knows this, and it's I don't even mean this as like a complete insult. He's not a very good X's and O's coach. He's in the Derek Kellogg mold. He is not going to scheme his way to a whole lot of victories and just sort of like out schematic the opponent. He is, however, a pretty good recruiter, a decent enough motivator, and a guy who can get, I mean, look, he can get players, so a good recruiter, right? And, and that's a huge deal, getting kids who are really good to go to schools that maybe are a little bit below their, the caliber that they would be set if this was like, you know, a computer simulation or something, right, is a talent. That is an immense talent. Any company runs because of sales. You don't exist if you can't bring in business, right? And in this business, it's bringing in players. And it's getting those players to play. You know, I mean, it's so credit where credit is due. 
So that's the one, one hand. The other side of the equation was Mark Schmidt at St. Bonaventure, who year after year finds guys who are overlooked, who are not heavily touted by the recruiting services, who just, you know, were for one reason or another did not have a lot of big time offers and does a spectacular job identifying precisely the right players who he can develop, who work for what he's trying to do, and who can win basketball games in the same Atlantic 10 as Travis Ford and transfers from Michigan State and four-star kids like Hassan French. So that's the sort of culture model, right? And, and Travis Ford himself said it yesterday before the game. I guess the announcers were saying, Schmidt runs more plays and more, you know, more sets, more actions than anybody he's coached, he, he's ever coached against, I think was the phrase. And you watch it, you're like, what the fuck? Like, you got to watch it like six times to figure out some of those, some of the little quick hitters that Schmidt ran. You're like, what? How did he get that shot? Like, it just seamlessly flows. Just dudes flying off screens and like hitting mid-range jumpers who, and every year you're like some kid who was averaging two points a game the next year comes back and he's like averaging 13. It's like, I was looking at, I think it was Courtney Stockard or Ladarian Griffin's career stat trajectory. And it's just like every year they get better. So that's the culture model, right? The, the kind of, we're going to get our kind of guys and we're going to, and we're going to sort of do it our way. And, 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 you know, some people will say, Oh, that's the right way. You know, the kind of, sort of sanctimonious types that that's the right way to do it. We have good kids and with the, with the subtle or not so subtle, I should say intimation that the Travis Ford kids are not as good of kids. And I think that's oversimplified and kind of bullshit sometimes. However, it's not completely bullshit in the sense that it takes a certain type of kid to want to, I mean, you've heard Cal Perry say this. He's like, I don't want to recruit kids who just like, want to set a million screens, right? Like <laughs> that's not what works for him. He wants to get great talent who can make plays, right? And that that matters. That's why St. Louis, to some degree, I mean, the narrative would be that that's why St. Louis ultimately won four games in a row and finally got their shit together because talent took over. It's a little more complicated than that. And I think St. Bonaventure just missed a bunch of shots down the stretch. But the point is both models ultimately worked. They both made the A-10 final. So the question becomes, where does UMass fit in that? The answer under Derek Kellogg, under Travis Ford prior to him, was this is a talent-based model. You've got to get kids higher than, you know, the kind of 50th percentile A-10 talent. And sometimes even high major kids who fell through the cracks for one reason or another. And that UMass is not historically thought of as a culture first program. Again, I don't want to suggest that a talent based program can not also have a great culture because any great program has both a great culture, has both great talent and great culture. So it's, you know, but the, but the point is, if you have both, you're probably not at UMass's level to begin with. And so to build a great program, you have to, the, the, set, the sort of 
consensus is, you have to pick one of these ways. And the truth is that the culture-based model is really fucking hard because if everybody could do it, they all would. And they can't because you have to be supremely exceptional to win Atlantic 10 titles or get to Atlantic 10 championship games in Olean, New York. Like that takes a freakish person, you know, freakishly talented coach to pull that off, right? And conversely, some of this is also about expectations. At a program like St. Bonaventure, you can pretty much go 18 and 13 every year and then at once in a blue moon get 20 wins and make a run in the A-10 tournament and even have a 16 and 16 season here and there and you're fine because you're in Olean, New York, you have 1,700 students, you, you know, so the expert, now it's probably a little different because they've had some success, but certainly when he first came in there, I mean, that program was in shambles. So the expectation is, is like, you know, that's people are through the moon. UMass, because it's a flagship university in a affluent state at a school that's been absolutely on the rise academically and athletically over the last 10 or 15 years, the baseline expectation is a little bit higher. And so if you go for sort of the culture first thing and you win 17, 18 games every year, that's not necessarily enough. So you find yourself in this predicament where you got to get some talent, but you can't get the talent that Duke gets. You can't get the talent that Kansas gets. So you have to maybe take flyers on some kids. You have to take transfers. You have to, you have to take kids that maybe weren't, can't miss talents, but maybe were, had high upside, but you know, had one or two things wrong with their game or weren't perceived as like, the highest character kids or didn't have the grades and had to sit out a year. And it's not at all to say that those kids can't become, I mean, the great coaches take those kids and they, they make them sweet 16 teams, but there's only 16 teams in the sweet 16. There's 350 division one teams. So it's not easy. So you have to make a calculated decision as to whether or not you're going to, to some degree, whether or not you're going to be a culture team or a talent team. And I think this is where it all gets back to UMass and McCall and where we're at now today. It's pretty clear. I mean, McCall came out of Florida, right? What's Florida? A talent and a culture team. Because you can get both there because you're a national championship caliber program. So you can do that. You don't have to take flyers on kids because everybody wants to come there. Certainly when they're winning national championships, they did. So he comes out of that mold. And that's a very difficult thing to shake because whether you are intellectually, you know, kind of aware of it or not, it's one thing to be aware of it in the abstract. And it's another to then say, okay, I got to build UMass. It's not the same as being at Florida. Matt's alluded to this, right? And, um, you know, when Matt was at Chattanooga, he was fortunate to inherit a group from Will Wade, who's now at LSU and is not coaching at the moment because even though they're the three seed, he was um, doing things not exactly on the up and up. So you wonder the players Matt inherited from him at uh, Chattanooga and won 29 games with, 
how they ended up at Duke in the first place. Because Wade jumped ship to VCU, then after two years there, jumped ship to LSU. Uh, but, but the point is that all of this is to say that I think Matt probably on some level feels more comfortable with the culture piece, right? And that's where guys like Carl Pierre and Keon Claire Go and Samba Diallo and Baptiste, they seem to fit really well. Those kids, you just didn't see, you just didn't see like petty bullshit on the floor with those guys very much, if at all, that you saw to varying degrees, some more than others. And you guys watch the games, you know what I'm talking about. You watch the body language on the bench, you know what I'm talking about, that you saw with some other kids. Not to say those kids I named were perfect. Nobody's perfect, but you know, relatively speaking, they're on a higher end of, of the culture scale that McCall has alluded to. Doesn't even mean they're the most talented though, right? And so, but the problem becomes, okay, you've got some pieces from a culture perspective, but ultimately you still need to win basketball games. And what happens is, you take a chance on a kid like Carl Pierre who had no division one offers. He's phenomenal. It's all wonderful. But the truth is there's odds in this business, like in any other business. And if you take a chance on 12 kids who don't have division one offers, there's a pretty good chance that five, six, seven, eight of them, no matter how hardworking, no matter how outstanding of people, and you know, whatever they are, a bunch of them aren't going to work out. There's a reason not all of them had, zero D1 offer. I mean, there's a reason that all of them had zero D1 offers. So you can't do that with your whole team. You have to go get talent. And that means you might have to go get kids who, uh, you know, aren't flawless. And by the way, I want to tell Matt McCall, hey, listen, dude, they're 18, they're 19, they're 20 years old. I was kind of a shithead at points myself. Very few kids are going to be flawless and just perfect for your culture. Some of that is on you to, to make the culture better. But beyond all that, what I'm getting at here is that now Matt has to pretty much, at this point, build the culture, but he's got to get talent too. He can't, it can't just be all culture because he has to win now. And when you have to win and you've had two really disappointing seasons in a row, the shorter way to get there is to get talent. Talent wins before a culture wins, right? And I think you can build a culture by winning a lot easier than you can build a culture by losing. So who he signs in the offseason, and we'll, we'll probably get to that in the, in the questions, is going to, and who he hires to get help get players is going to reveal a lot about his long-term plans here and and his short-term plans, frankly. And it's going to reveal a lot as to whether or not he is uh, going to go the culture-centric route or the talent-centric route. And right now, he's in a position where he pretty much has to go the talent-centric route. And that can be awesome. The upsides can be enormous. You get a couple of kids in here, and there's some rumor that we're hearing about right now that can be game-changing recruits and can change the trajectory of Matt McCall's career real quick. You can also take flyers on kids who didn't end up at the school that maybe they were projected to go to for one reason or the other, and that can sink your culture. So he is not in an enviable position at the moment, but I also believe 
he probably has a real conception now as to exactly what he has to do. And if he doesn't, he's gone. So, you know, his back's against the wall. Uh, he's got to win. He has not made friends by firing three coaches. It's not an easy thing to do in the business. It's a fairly small business. You're only dealing with 350 schools. It's, you know, a thousand coaches. It's, it's small. It's smaller than you think. So he knows what he's got to do now. The incentives are aligned for everyone with respect to he's got to go get players who can win him basketball games right away and who won't hurt the culture he's trying to build in the process. It will be an offseason like no other. It will keep going. I look forward to chronicling it and talking about it and rooting for him to be successful because at the end of the day, we're all on the same page here and we are really uh, going to learn a lot about McCall, a lot about UMass, a lot about the administration, a lot about our fan base in the next year. And I will be here every step of the way. I hope to be here every step of the way for it. So nobody is fully innocent in any of this. Nobody's guilty in any of this. There's a lot of shades of gray. There's a lot of versions of events that you're going to hear. And, you know, I, I seek to, to ultimately say at this point, it doesn't really matter what's happened to this point. I mean, it does insofar as we're here. But at this point, Matt McCall has one year to get us to 17, 18 wins. I'm setting that as pretty much a baseline expectation or he is in a lot of trouble. Uh, this is not Derek Kellogg, who had alumni status and a, a legendary career and a, and a backer in John Calipari and others and, and local fan support from his, you know, going way back to his high school era. This is, uh, you know, a guy who I am rooting for immensely, and I think he can get the job done, but he's got to win now. And so we're going we're gonna to learn a lot. It's time for Sam the Mailman, your UMass Athletics mailbag updates. All right, we got a lot of questions tonight, and I'm going to just go through them as fast as I can. I, I think I've probably touched on a lot of the points that will come up here, but uh, let's just jump right in. PVL7, P-V-E-A-L-E, Riff Raff Street Pat, who I believe is actually a Nova alum and a diehard UMass fan. He says, if you could control alt delete your brain and become a fan of any A10 team from today forward, who is your pick? That's a phenomenal question. It's also a great palate cleanser to segue from some of the serious talk. I was just going on about into a lighter, lighter fare, which is really what I, I like to do on the show. I would say. I mean, it's kind of weird because. Bonna has such a strange and interesting fan base, but I, I kind of like the Bonnies and like, there's something nice about just overachieving, but they've also had a lot of heartbreak. It definitely wouldn't be Dayton. I love the Dayton Twitter folks, but it just, that's too stale and kind of just like Midwestern and kind of small C conservative. I don't mean like conservative liberal. I just mean like, it's just like older and kind of just, it's not a reckless VCU is pretty fucking cool. I'm not going to lie. They got a good thing going there. It's good vibes. It's really unique thing. So VCU 
maybe Bonaventure. Um, Bennett, you got one? BCU is the first one that came to mind. Uh, but it's like a little bandwagony at this point. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you'd have to like, it'd have to but be you know like, what? It's oh, not I so, knew someone. It's not so bandwagony because it's not like they're like a Final Four team. Anymore. I mean, they were once. Right, but. I say, right. it's a little bit past it. There's something about St. Bonaventure where it's just like, it's this little town no one's ever heard of. Nothing happens. But this basketball team just plays a, way better than they're supposed to. It's this weird culture to it that I really like. But I, I don't know if I could ever be a fan. The thing is, like, I fuck with Bonnie under Mark Schmidt. But, like, Bonnie was so bad for a while. Like, right, they were basically sure. good in, like, 1969. And they made, like, a Final Four or whatever. And then they pretty much sucked for the next 30 years. They had J.R. Bremer in, like, 2000. And then kind of sucked again. They had the terrible scandal and Mark Schmidt. So like Bana under Mark Schmidt, but they were in the dark for a while. I mean, they were, they were deep in the woods there. So St. Joe's has a cool ass fan base. And I think like it will be good to kind of restart that thing when Martelli eventually does leave. And, and I think it'll be fun and they have a good atmosphere and it's Philly. So like, I could fuck with St. Joe's, but their their Twitter game is not on point. Uh, well, how much more on point would it be if you were a fan of the team, though? Is something you have to think of also. Yeah, it's true. You'd be, like, real immersed in it. Um, I, I think it's probably VCU. I'm not going to lie. Um, okay. T. Davis 418 says, now that all of DK's guys are out, can McCall finally get down to business with the culture he envisioned? So uh, we kind of alluded to that throughout. I mean, I think that helps, right? Like, I think it, it helps to have cut ties to anyone left from that regime. But other than Pip, and other than Pip this year's Pip, I don't, like, I don't think Unique McLean or Rashawn Holloway were such issues. Like, that's where I get a little critical of McCall. Like, I, I obviously totally hear what he's saying with culture, but it's like, listen, dude, you can't be a hundred percent. Like, you can't be. Not every kid is going to be like a hundred percent locked in at every second. Like, it's your job to. And that I've said this before. Like, Derek Kellogg couldn't run an after. I said this on Twitter. Like, Derek Kellogg couldn't run an after timeout play like to get out of a paper bag, but he was uniquely gifted at getting kids who maybe gave like two fucks to give four fucks McCall wants every kid to give 10 fucks, you know? And like, sometimes you have to be like, all right, I recruited this kid knowing that he probably gave two fucks and it's my job to get the most out of him and get him to give four fucks. And that's what is going to make him, you know, that's why he's, he's still really talented. So I, I, I got this kid with a nine on talent to give one more fuck than he would have given. And so I, I, you know, and I'm not convinced that like Holloway and I don't think Holloway and like Unique McLean are, you know, were wildly bought in, right? And they, I think that's helpful that guys who are no longer under McCall, like, you know, are gone. But, you know, it's like, I think it'll help, yes, to, to get his culture achieved. But I don't think that those three thus far are like the total difference makers. I mean, I think some of the guys, let's be honest, some of the guys he brought in 
you know, appear to have been some of the bigger culture challenges, particularly, you know, transfers. Um, Real Mike R91 says, will Jalen Thomas decommit now? Jalen Thomas, of course, uh, the center from Detroit Jesuit, very solid player. He's had a good, se- great senior season uh, and was recruited. The lead on his recruitment was um, Rasheen Davis. I don't know. Um, that I think some of that remains to be seen in terms of who Matt continues to recruit. Uh, like if Trey Mitchell, who's rumored, you know, is UMass is in like his final five or six and many, and, and sources I trust say he could be literally the best recruit at UMass since Marcus can be like if he, and he's six, nine and can play kind of a four five, then maybe Thomas reconsiders, but I don't, Necessarily think so, because I think McCall is probably fairly involved in that recruitment as well. And, you know, Baptiste is graduating in a year and, you know, you need size and you can run the floor. And I think he fits with what McCall wants to do. So not necessarily, no. Uh, and also someone notes that he signed a national letter of intent, so he can't decommit. That's a good point. I hadn't pondered that. You really can't decommit, huh? Wow. Um, Matthew Parent, good friend of the show, says... Who do you see as the team leaders next year? I think pretty clearly, assuming they're both back, uh, Keon Clairgaud and Carl Pierre uh, are both really solid junior leaders. I, I might make those guys captains in the offseason if, if, you know, to, to bring a little bit of stability to this group. Uh, they're very different types of leaders, um, but I think both of them are relentless workers and really care. And I think that that's the model you want to set for the rest of the program. There's really no one else. I mean, everyone else is a freshman now. So that rising sophomore or Kieran Hayward, who's, um, you know, in his second year as a transfer, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, I guess Laurent, if he stays, but I think, I think that two junior captains would be totally fine. I think both those guys have shown themselves suited, but particularly Carl Pierre, Zach is God says, why do I feel perfectly fine with all the craziness going on with UMass basketball? Like a calm feeling in my head that says this is actually going to work out well. So I kind of agree with that. Like I know that at the out, not the outset, the the rant that preceded the mailbag tonight, I know that I was maybe expressing concern about where to go from here. And I was, I was articulating the challenges of kind of defining what UMass is in the college basketball landscape and how to recruit accordingly and kind of speaking to some of that identity crisis, those identity crisis issues. But that's partly because I'm doing a podcast and I'm trying to lay out the challenges. I don't think those challenges are insurmountable. And I think that UMass does have some things going for it and that maybe hitting reset with respect to staff and getting rid of the guys who were you know, challenges to the culture could be exactly what this team needs. And maybe you go become, dare I say it, a nineteen twenty win team next year. I mean, it's not completely inconceivable, right? You got to remember, and I think about this a lot, right? It's pretty clear UMass had issues in that locker room this year. And some guys weren't totally bought in and, you know, Pip was banged up and just not as invested as he was last year when he, couldn't leave and had nowhere to go. And I think played with more of a chip on his shoulder. But even amid that, 
this is a UMass team. You look down the list of games and it's like just giving like a quarter of one fuck more, you beat Howard. A quarter of one fuck more, you beat Holy Cross. A quarter of one fuck more, you beat an injury-laden Harvard team. That's three wins right there. A quarter of fuck one more, you don't make dumbass mistakes and you beat GW in that first game of the A-10 tournament. That's four. Uh, trying to think. A quarter of a fuck more and you don't shoot, or, or God forbid, you don't shoot 20 fucking percent at LaSalle and you win that game. There's, there's Now you're up to 16 wins, right? Now granted, the wins against St. Joe's, Providence and Davidson were kind of pulled out of their ass too. So maybe it's a net plus two and you're at 13 wins. But I still think like the giving a fuck against Fordham at home or, you know, there's, there's like little things that even in a shitty ass year, if they'd done a tiny bit more, they would have won a bunch more games. And yes, that's the nature of the Atlantic 10. If you don't, you know, give a shit the whole time and you're not wildly talented, you're going to, you're going to, the, the difference between an 11 win season and a 17 win season is not a ton. So it's like, you could say that about anyone, but Zach is right in the sense that if you can get a few things corrected and there's a better mood around the team and sort of the culture stuff improves, like it's not inconceivable to see them making a big jump. And by the way, if it doesn't, well, okay. So you cut ties or whatever, but I, I mean, I think that the incentives are aligned, as I said, like everybody knows what you got to do now. And, you know, so I think there's, there is a comfort in that. I agree with what Zach's saying. Uh, Dan Mayo, Dan underscore M-A-I-O says, are the assistants being fired leftovers from the DK era or did McCall bring them in? McCall brought them in. Uh, so he'll bring in three more new ones. And Minute Fan JSF says, is there any truth to the rumor of a rift between Bamford and McCall? So I will say, and then he says, in other words, uh, is Bamford micromanaging? I will say that in all of my DMs, and there's been many, that narrative has only come up maybe once. Um, one person alluded to it, but they were alluding more to Bamford defending uh, McCall against uh, some frustrated booster types. And I try to, I just, I mean, boosters, look, I mean, not to a degree, I'm a booster. I don't, I'm not a funding booster, but I'm saying like boosters are fans, right? Like, and fans sometimes are, terribly insightful and they're fans of money basically, but terribly insightful and have interesting things to say. And sometimes they have their own gripes. Uh, and you know, sometimes they want more access to the coach and that's not the coach style. And so that stuff, I, I think it almost doesn't matter, right? Like, because again, he was always going to get year three and whether or not Bamford and him have a rift, like it almost just doesn't matter as long as he gets to work and Bamford isn't, impeding with how he runs practice or, uh, you know, recruits or whatever. And I have not yet been given reason to believe that, 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 that Bamford is, uh, micromanaging 
at that level. However, one couldn't completely fault an athletic director whose university's premier sport historically, at least on the national level, is perceived as being basketball. Because let's be honest, Brian Bamford's an ambitious dude. Brian Bamford understands on some level that he's probably not going anywhere himself until he gets two of his marquee three sports turned around. Right now he's got one. And so Ryan's own career trajectory is in many ways inextricably linked with that of Matt McCall's. So obviously there is probably a certain impatience there, a healthy impatience to some degree, right? I mean, again, the incentives are are aligned. Like he wants Matt to be successful because that makes him successful. When a co- when an athletic director is looking for another job, what are they going to look at? They're going to look at how did you fundraise, how did you engage, you know, with various stakeholders and handle the politics of the job, and how did you hire? Because the truth is, that's what makes an athletic program successful: is the coaches who lead your programs, and if you hire them, that's your big thing. So, you know. I, Again, it just doesn't matter. I, I don't know. I mean, they both need to win. So, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I'll leave that to those two to figure out. Um, UMass Twitter, that's his actual handle, says, who will be the first to say bring back Travis Ford? Uh, no one said it yet, and I, I suspect, you know, you never know. Uh, but then another guy... W. Nahim jumps in and says, bring back Travis Ford. So there's your answer. Um, UMasshoops.com asks, <laughs> and this is Mike, the uh, main UMass Hoops, the founder, who handles the, the handle. It says, actual question, what the fuck? You know, Mike, I don't quite know precisely what you're referring to with this particular what the fuck, but I think the last... 90 minutes to two hours has probably probably answered uh, some of those questions about what the fuck. Marshmont63, who's been on the show, BC grad and UMass fan. Yes, I said that correctly. Says, at what point during the season do you think McCall thought about slash knew that he was going to fire some slash all of his assistants? How much blame do you attribute to the assistants versus McCall? Great, great questions. I think uh, you know, Billy D, our friend from Twitter, found today a tweet I said uh, on February 6th saying that I definitely expect some assistance to be let go. So I, I suspect I suspect his frustrations with these assistants probably predated the start of practice. And then as the season, it just kind of went on and on. And I think by certainly by that 0 and 6 point in league, you got to think he was already like in his head. All right, I'm going to get rid of this guy or I'm going to get rid of that guy. I, according to the sources I spoke with, I was always expecting two to be gone. I was not necessarily expecting three. Um, sources I had spoken with were pretty sure Warren was gone for kind of a while. Not a while, I mean, you know, a month or two. 
and then I knew one other would would be let go, or I had a feeling I should say one other would be let go. I didn't know who it was going to be, and then when he went with all three, that was something of a surprise. So, um, Rob Kyer, Kyer package says, how long does McCall have from here on out to show improvement? So, I mean, he's got what a five-year deal at this point. So, is it six? Did he get an extension of one year after last year? I forget. So, I think he has to win like sheer minimum sixteen games next year. I think he has to exceed five hundred. If he goes like five hundred and has some, because remember they have that Mohegan Sun tournament with like University of Virginia, St. John's, Arizona State. So, and then they play. Good. I think South Carolina is going to be pretty good next year. And Temple, I think, at home or no, Rutgers. South Carolina Rutgers, who's like on the up and up. So right there, like I just named four tough games. I don't know if they play Harvard again, but I mean, so my point is if they play 500 ball, but they like play hard and, and have some encouraging non-conference performances against clearly like NCA caliber teams. And then they kind of get their shit together in February, and March, and, and maybe win a game or two in Brooklyn. If they end up like 500, I, he probably is okay. Cause there's clear momentum. Anything below that, he's probably gone. Like it's, it's, eh. you know, if there is some, be said, yeah, it's tough. Because it's tough to cut someone off after three. I mean, that's not a lot of time. Like you, you got to give him four, pretty much, unless it's like a disaster. So if he goes eleven and twenty-one again, he's gone. But if he goes fourteen and seventeen, and there's a bunch of close losses, but they're like good close losses, not like you know the difference. Not blown down the stretch close losses where you just can't shoot. Like you know what I mean? Then he could conceivably stay. He'd probably have to restructure his deal. Um, and sort of go all in for that season. But if he's 11, 12 wins, he's out. I believe that. Um, Son of Large Mark, great friend of the show, says, how many weeks left until UMass Minutemen are cutting down the nets in Brooklyn? Well, I sort of answered that at the outset of the show, so we're not doing that anymore. Follow-up, thoughts on the rumor of Bergeron being one of the assistants to come in? I'm glad we got here. I think I'd hire Berkman's son if you brought up a hundred, a top hundred guy with him. So let's get right in there. I it, it's it's time to pull the proverbial bandaid off this one. All right. When he asks about Bergeron, and I, I wasn't going to say anything. I've had a, this is one that a lot of sources. I mean, I don't even want to call them sources, just tipsters. Some sources close to the program, some straight up tipsters, some absolute strangers who just are in the basketball world. They've all been coming in with this one. I think it's already on UMass hoops from that guy. Um, the off season, he likes to, he likes to, tw- uh, to mix it up in there. So this is out there and let's just rip off the bandaid. Tony Bergeron, who he asks about is the head coach at Woodstock Academy, which is the powerhouse prep school in Connecticut that currently features on its roster one Preston Santos, if I'm not mistaken, who's already signed to play at UMass and maybe the most talented player in the uh, 
2019 class. And perhaps more relevantly at the current moment, one Trey Mitchell, the aforementioned big time prospect, four star kid, 6'9, 240, can shoot it, has just gotten better and better, has, has narrowed, included UMass in its his final five or six schools, including fourth seeded Virginia Tech, Syracuse. Um, I forget the rest of the company, but, but he's been recruited just about everywhere. Big time get. The rumor, and by the way, he's also the head coach for TJ Weeks, the son of Tyrone Weeks, former UMass legend, who has narrowed it down from what I last saw to, I believe, Fordham and UMass, and by all accounts would be a very solid Atlantic 10 player. I've heard comparisons to Carl Pierre, a very good kid, high character kid, etc. The rumor to which son of large Mark alludes that everybody and their mother is uh, asking me about is that Bergeron would come with Mitchell in sort of a package deal and weeks perhaps as well. And what do I think about it? I've thought an immense amount about it in the last. Mm, this one came in my DMs. Well, I guess it was probably close to a month ago. The first rumor of it, mm, maybe three. I don't know. I don't know. Timing. Time is flat circle. I don't fucking know. So <clears throat> I still, I believe that Matt McCall at this point knows what he has to do to be successful. And Tony Bergeron, who is a Springfield native and has been a extraordinarily successful high school coach over the last two decades, both in Western Massachusetts at McDuffie, the McDuffie school for a time, about 15, 16, something like that years ago. East Longmeadow randomly, I think he won a sectional title one year because he was back in the area for some reason or another. And outside of Western Mass, including at the big time high school power Wings Academy in the Bronx, where he won a lot there as well. Tony Bergeron has been freakishly successful. He's won absolutely everywhere. I also know, quite frankly, and from talking to people and doing my research in the last few weeks, that Tony Bergeron is not always the most highly regarded by people in the college basketball coaching fraternity, as you sometimes hear it referred to. And so, on balance, you have to look at those factors and say, well, Here's a guy who's won for 20 years at some of the top high school programs and didn't get a college gig. Why? And some people might want me to say, well, he must be an asshole or people in the college coaching world don't like him. And I'm not going to say that because here's the thing. On balance, I think a lot of people in the college coaching world, with much respect to all of the terrific people who do it, are not exactly as is the case, by the way, in every profession, are not exactly the most um, savory fellows themselves. And I think a lot of people who sometimes are regarded as assholes are actually really fucking good at their jobs. You know who else was kind of regarded as an asshole and still is to this day? John Calipari. 
um, a lot of other guys. So if Matt McCall believes that the ticket to success for him right now is back against the wall is to hire an individual who is regarded as both very good as a motivator and as an X and O guy and as a guy who can get players to buy in, often kids who were not uh, five-star culture kids from what I've heard to buy in, although I've heard that his current group at Woodstock is really good kids, then who the fuck am I to say otherwise? And by the way, by the way, the number of uh, high school, I did a little research on this in, in preparing for this question. The number of winning college coaches who have employed ex-high school coaches in recent years is on the upswing and is not at all unusual. So um, when I was doing a little research, uh, the, the Kevin Keats at, at NC State got a guy, um, as did Danny Hurley at one point. As did, and by the way, Danny Hurley himself was a high school coach until he had two years experience at, um, at, uh, Wagner and then went to Rhode Island. So there's great coaches everywhere. I'm not concerned about that. Um, Travis Ford, I believe had a high school guy on his staff this year. Um, so, and they just won the A-10, right? So like, this is not that unusual. I should note that you have to know, and I, I don't know Tony Bergeron. Like some people I've talked to said he's absolutely fantastic. But Matt has to know that he's an assistant and he's a guy who's been used to being the head coach for a long, long time. So Matt has to understand and, and think closely. And it's not just unique to Tony Bergeron. It's unique to anyone he hires. Matt has to think about what that relationship looks like. Matt has to define, that's his job as a manager and as a leader. He has to make sure he is, you know, explicitly demarcating precisely what role Mr. Bergeron or any other assistant he hires. And I don't think the Bergeron thing's a done deal by any means. I think it's still in the rumor phase. I think it's, I suspect there's probably talks. Um, but look, Tony Bergeron could be coveted at Wake Forest if they have an opening. He could be coveted anywhere. I mean, he, you know, so a lot of people who um, might want his talents, particularly if he brings, you know, a four-star kid with him. So um, let's not count our chickens before they hatch. But, you know, I tend to like guys who are maybe aren't always celebrated by the basketball establishment. I tend and, – and, and who've won everywhere they've gone. But, you know, those things always come with – uh, and this isn't even unique to that personality. It's just unique to a head coach has to figure out the relationship he's going to have with his assistants and what their jobs are and what precisely their responsibilities are. And he needs to carve that out clearly and continue to reinforce it and make sure that, you know, players are still loyal to him as the head coach and that they're so that's for him to figure out. But if the guy can coach, if the guy gets players, if the guy, you know, checks all those boxes and, and there's, and there's nothing that's going to, you know, hurt the program from a legal or, 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 you know, reputational standpoint in, in any ways beyond the usual, just shit talking of, of the kind of 
college coaching commentator types, then great. Bring him in. He could be outstanding. You know, I mean, he's got ties to the area. So, and, you know, look, that's where, you know, there's that culture versus talent dynamic. That's where you got to say, like, look, I maybe in some part of my mind wish UMass was Davidson or St. Bonaventure. And I think we should, to some degree, get away from the sort of um, reputation in some circles of UMass as a as a talent, not culture program. But we are who we are. And if you can get a guy who helps with talent and you start winning, the culture can come. So you got to know who you are. And if this is the right hire... I trust Matt. All right, next question. Hold on, next question. Uh, Sloven, good friend of the show, Slovis1590, says, when will the next Greyhick Sage single be dropped? Like, last one with the British accent was fire. Yeah, my best friend owns a sound, the story here is my best friend owns a sound studio in, uh, in New York. He's Western Mass kid, though. And, uh, he makes incredible music, and I, I took voice lessons in college, actually, and I like to sing. So I showed up one night. He didn't know what he was doing with the song. It sort of like had like the Cure vibe or like, I don't, I don't know music well enough to like really go into it, but it was like, I, I just heard the song. I was after work, and I was like, I got it. And I just fucking hopped on with this wild-ass British accent where I was like, what, was it, what were the lyrics? I was like, like... Um, oh yeah, the, here were, here were the lyrics. I swear, it was literally like this. I'm not kidding. I could do it. I could do that. I could go to his studio every day for the next two years, and I would not come up with a catchier song than what I came up with impromptu in three minutes. It was just a burst of creativity, and I just was like, "I'm here, I'm alive, and that's not such a bad thing." And it was like <laughs> just throwing lyrics out like cobwebs and sunlight i'm alive and then it's like the beat drops and like and i've arrived like i kid you not we played the song he now he made the incredible like beat right like he so he deserves all the credit but we played it for people like unbeknownst it was me and they were like like legitimate brooklyn hipsters and they were like dude this slaps it's bangs dude shit is tight like, I'm not even joking. So if you want to hear it, holler at your boy. Um, maybe make a donation to the pod. So I don't know if there's going to be a new track. But I'm going to go there in the offseason because now that I've you know, got a little more time, I'll, I'm going to maybe make some more hits. He's putting out an album soon, and he wants me to do some sketch comedy on it. John Wood, speaking of music, a member of the band, I believe, says, what song would you like to hear the UMass band play next year? Maybe that song. Maybe that's the answer. But Bennett, what songs would you like to hear the band play? Um, I don't like, dude. I'm the one thing. It's I'm always good with whatever they play. Honestly, I used to stand yeah, they're directly great. They're next great. to them. They're so good. I'm cool with whatever. Yeah. So I, GW had a band that played something that was really good, and I can't remember what it was. I also want to note that the trend in and and our friend on the pod CMGI Field, I believe is his handle, mentioned this the other day. I retweeted it, but um, ska 
it has like a fourth wave now because of college pet bands. And like, I look I, like I love hearkening back to childhood and when UMass basketball is good, but like, I don't think I need any more mighty, mighty Boston's. I, I, I don't know. I just, it feels a little dated. I don't need Katy Perry per se, which I've heard some bands do. Although that was actually pretty good. I'm not gonna lie. Um, let me think about that throughout the off season. Don't hesitate to ask it before a future, another future episode. Cause I, I may come up with something, but forget in the meantime. So, um, that, that could be a longstanding thing that we could discuss. Um, other questions. Hang on. Other questions. Let's see what we got. Jacob Deschanel says, is the B-ball program going through a fire sale? I mean, you can't really sell the team in college sports, but it's going through a host of changes. Mike Stefanowicz, mstefo33. Says players continue to flee the program. Now assistant coaches are getting smoked out. Why would any player want to come here and risk throwing away a few years of eligibility? Well, to some degree, like I would actually flip that and I'd say, here's a program that's not content with mediocrity and was like, if you're not going to do it the right way, we're not going to take you. And I think there is something actually refreshing about that for all the darkness of college sports and blah, blah, blah. I think Matt, there's enough kids who return. I hope knock on wood, fingers crossed. Carl Pierre, Samba Diallo, Cy Chapman, I believe will be back. Keon Clergo, who McCall can point to and be like, look, these guys did it the way I asked and they've gotten better. And that's true. So I mean, Carl Pierre's stats might be slightly less than last year, although it's probably very similar. But toward the end of the year, he definitely progressed, particularly when Pip went down. So I think Matt has a little more of a blueprint that he can point to than maybe you're giving him credit for. But I hear the concern. It's, it's not it's not an unlegitimate concern. Um, you know, I mean, and you'll see that stuff used in recruiting, but that's, that's how it is anywhere. I mean, like every school, Cool. You know, you're going to put shit in kids ear. It's like, why would you go here? Would you go here? Whatever. And like, that is probably why we lost out on a kid last year, like Kyle Lofton, who was the best freshman I've seen in the league in a while at St. Bonaventure, who was down to UMass in St. Bonaventure. I think he probably was just like, you know what? I want to go somewhere with like a stable, solid winning culture and like maybe not have to like deal with some bullshit. But look, like that's probably why you have to go in that talent direction sometimes you got to take chances that's the reality and it's just taking maybe slightly better chances than you took the first time when you came in two years ago if you're matt mccall um so riffraff street pat also asked are there any positives to be taken from this past season he said three-part question that's the first part uh samba diallo's emergence before he got injured at the end of the season was encouraging Carl Pierre, when Pip went down in particular and was able to get 15 or 20 shots a night, the GW game in the final finale and a couple others notwithstanding, that was encouraging, particularly the way he took it to the rim. Uh, Cy Chapman, very late in the year, his athleticism and emergence was encouraging. 
Jonathan Laurent, it's hard to say encouraging because it was inconsistent, but there were moments where you said, wow, he could, you could damn near build the team around that guy if he sticks around and is, has the right attitude. Um, and Keon Clairgo's improvement throughout the year was a positive. So there are positives, even in a bad year. Yes. Does the potential firing, same, same questioner, of all three assistants make you feel better or worse about the future slash next season? Ultimately better, it's sad and it's not easy, but it means that McCall is super committed, not just to like tinkering on the margins, but getting this right and getting a group of guys in here who are, um, you know, meet the, the, the sort of standards he set. It's also worth noting in McCall's defense that he came here, remember, Kelsey leaves, and then there's another two weeks. So he didn't come till the very, very end of March. And he didn't have a whole lot of time to assemble a staff and get on the road and start recruiting. And you have to assemble a staff quickly so that you can start recruiting because otherwise your program is perceived as not stable and you also just don't have the eyes to watch kids. So he goes and gets Rasheen Davis, who had just been let go by – um, Will Wade, when Will Wade took the uh, LSU job and dumped all his assistants from VCU. Okay, decent enough hire. He brings his boy Gash, who was with him for a while and was like his buddy, I guess, from um, Chattanooga. Okay, fine. You want your you want a guy you're familiar with to be around you as you transition to a new place, but is he the best available option? I don't know. I mean, he's, it's like you're looking for a Northeast recruiter. You're looking for, you know, whatever. So there's that. And then he wants like a more experienced guy, maybe some head coaching experience. And he finds Cliff Warren, who was at that time like an administrative guy at Maryland, but had previously been a head coach at Jacksonville and sort of matches that archetype that he thinks he's seeking, but he doesn't really know him well. And he does it quick and obviously didn't work. So it's a real quick time to assemble a staff. And, uh, you know, I think now um, he's probably given it a lot more thought. And I think that it's probably a good thing. And then final question, he says, over under UMass hockey wins for the rest of the year, 3.5. He notes that you have to get six for the hockey tournament and a national to, title. To win out, would, yeah, winning out would be six. So I say over. Is it three For and a sure. half? It's basically, do you get to the Frozen Four and win hockey? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the over. Because they're, they're, it is either, like, they either win the Hockey East Championship and then go somewhere, or they win the whole fucking thing, and who cares if they win this weekend? Like, that's although, the, only, those are the two things I yeah, see. Yeah, although I could see them, like, winning against BC, losing to Northeastern in the final, and then winning two and losing in the frozen four to one of those Minnesota teams. But like, I, I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying like, first of all, I don't know enough about hockey. Second of all, like it's just, why the fuck would I root for the under? Yeah. It's of no course. Fun. Right. There's so the, over. the answer is they're going six and zero, uh, national championship. And then they'll win the next 10 national championships in a row. Yeah. That's the VCU plan. grumpy, grumpy, a VCU fan asks. So the players struggle. Now it's the assistant coaches. Any chance McCall needs to look in the mirror? 
I mean, like, what do you want him to do, though? Like, right? Like, <laughs> fire himself? Like, that's not, no one does that. In what profession, when you struggle and have the ability to stick around, do you say, you know what? I'm just going to give up my salary and, uh, and quit because I didn't get it done. I mean, like, that's not how the world works. But, I mean, yeah, he's obviously got to look in the mirror. And he, to me, firing three assistants is looking in the mirror. It sucks. He doesn't, I don't think he takes delight in, like, getting rid of his staff. Like, particularly, like, Pete Gash, who he's been with for a while, who has, like, a young kid, whatever. It sucks, man. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think McCall is, like, a socio. Well, most head coaches are kind of sociopaths, so he's probably got some sociopathic tendencies. The point is, like, that is a form of looking in the mirror. And then now, if he doesn't get it done, it's like, all right, well, you looked in the mirror. You, you figured out what you felt was the way to do it. You fucked up. And, and let's just be clear here. Derek Kellogg, and like, look, McCall makes mistakes. Like, I got issues with the guy. He's not flawless. But Derek Kellogg, after the 2015 end-of-season loss to LaSalle in the conference tournament, said he was going to reevaluate his entire program. He subsequently, I think his reevaluation came in the form of elevating Andy Allison, who was an assistant at the time, to or was a grad, like a like an administrative guy, to a, a main assistant. That was the only change he made. There was nothing. What happened? Well, he had two more shitty years, and then he got fired. So on some level, it's probably the case where, you know, you wonder how much that was Bamford saying, you got to like really, you got to really drop an atomic bomb on this thing. You got to really blow it up here versus how much of it was him. But like the reality is he he's getting rid of a ton of dudes. He's changing everything. Like he's possibly bringing in, you know, uh, a, a, a high school coach, you know, I mean, so yeah, like it's, he needs to look in the mirror. It's partly his fault for making those hires in the first place for recruiting guys who didn't fit his culture in the first place for whatever, like, but I don't know, you know, it just doesn't, it seems like sort of a strange question. Um, Eric Friedlander, who I hung out with at the A-10 tournament, great kid, says three assistant coach openings. What is the profile McCall should be looking at to replace them? So let's, like, say Bergeron is 75% deal. I mean, I'm making that up completely. But that's, like, your super intense guy who also brings some players in the immediate here and now, potentially. Then I think you need uh, probably, like, an older dude with experience who really keeps your program connected matt talks about that all the time but i think that some of that has to fall to an assistant a guy who isn't necessarily a great recruiter isn't necessarily a great um x and o guy isn't necessarily a great scout isn't necessarily whatever but is a dude who can keep the players locked in who can you know you got to remember we're dealing with 18 19 20 21 year old kids and some of them whom are from you know, difficult backgrounds and have dealt with, you know, unimaginable grief and, you know, trauma and, you know, come from all different walks of life, right? It's any, any coach I've spoken with says this, but it's immensely valuable to have a guy on your staff who can just be a listening board, you know, for these guys who can just understand intuitively the psychological rhythms of the team and, and knows 
you know, Derek Kellogg, to his eternal credit, brought in that guy, Dr. James Carr, as a uh, sports psychologist. And you want someone a little bit like that um, as a staff member sometimes, too. Or uh, just or, you know, the guy who can, you know, a lot of a lot of what being that that particular brand of assistant is, is keeping guys away from the head coach basically dealing with the shit before it gets up the chain because the head coach is running an organization. So he needs to, I think Matt probably, and you kind of sense this this year where it felt like Matt was almost doing a little bit too much of that shit and not the sort of program. Like you would never hear Nick Saban talk about like, the mood of a particular player just wouldn't because you know there's like some sociopath strength and conditioning coach who's like you know dealt with that well before in fact like if you read about Nick Saban he has like a strength conditioning coach who he sees as like doing a lot of that in the offseason in particular when coaches have less contact with players so I think he needs a guy like that whether that's Tony Bergeron or whatever I don't know he needs a guy who can flat out get players who has an incredible network in the recruiting world who is trusted by AAU coaches and high school coaches alike and who can just get players like that's huge you, you recruiting is the lifeblood of every program and not only who can just get players but ideally the sort of perfect match would be a guy who can evaluate players and I say the, the distinction between because like I've said if you want a combination of kind of culture and talent then you got to hit on some of those kids that Mark Schmidt hits on too. Um, and under, and, and, and Matt clearly did that with Carl Pierre, but you need a guy, but I think Matt will still recruit and he'll be able to find the Carl Pierre's. It's about getting the guy who can bring in the Trey Mitchell's and maybe that's Tony Bergeron now, but longer term, you know, how long are Tony Bergeron's connections going to be there if he was a high school coach, right? You don't know. Maybe, that, maybe that's still him. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, so you need the psychological guy who's a sounding board for players, but also can play the role of disciplinarian if necessary, you need the recruiter. And then I think you, for the third guy, I think Matt's very comfortable with the X's and O's stuff and, and enjoys it. And, and UMass for as devoid of talent as it was at times, got a lot of open shots. They ran fairly good stuff. I, I will say I was not, that's an, that's a sign of encouragement from the year. I mean, if you like, you look at how many good looking missed shots they had like it's they got those shots for a reason they ran decent actions but maybe you want another guy with that you know maybe you want a jack of all trades you want a guy who is just a relentless worker who can help you with uh, a little bit of everything and it's just you know sort of like mini me you know like that's you know I think there is something to that where you just like have a guy that you're comfortable with and maybe that's not Gash, who is his friend, but it's maybe, maybe it's an up and coming 29 year old or something or 20, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's that kind of a guy, but I think you want someone who you can vibe with. You just need a guy who you can like, who's your, who's totally loyal to you and who you can grab beers with and, you know, have family dinner with. I think, I think that helps, right? Like you, you want to, we all, when we go to work each day, want to have that one person that we like fuck with, you know, that that's like, you know, you're ride or die, so to speak. So that's sort of how I would think of the composition of the staff. 
um, you may be able to accomplish some of those things with your administrative staff, your your grad assistants and whatnot. And I have had reason to believe that, that those guys were actually pretty good. So maybe you elevate one of those guys. Uh, I don't know. Be interesting to see. Um, I think there's a couple more. Matt Broderick, not my day off on Twitter, says, is McCall's passion for UMass basketball genuine? I question how much he really wants to be an Amherst. Yeah, I've never been under any illusions about whether he wants to be an Amherst long-term. I don't think he does, and I think that's fine. He's a, he's a Southern guy through and through. He's from Florida. That's where his, you know, he went to college there. He coached there. Uh, then he coached in Chattanooga in Tennessee. So, you know, his wife is from up here, so I think that that's been nice for them. She's, like, from New York. You know, so I wouldn't be stunned if he was to really have an unbelievable success if he took, like, the St. John's job in two years. I know that's way down the line and, you know, unlikely. But I'm just saying, like, she's from – I think she's from – I want to say, like, Long Island, I heard. I forget. Queens, I forget. So, uh, so yeah, like, I I don't have any – I don't care. Like, I, I think – like what is you know every coach is kind of you know to some degree every head coach to some degree is a narcissist and a bullshit artist and all that and you know all these people are flawed like all human beings in the world are flawed so I have no problem with if he you know I I think he's passionate about resurrecting the program because it again the incentives align if he does that then he gets a better job somewhere so great we all win but uh, I don't really care I just it's you know I mean. And I think to some degree he he appreciates the history of the game and he's you know, he, he he understands what UMass means to a lot of people. He knows that people like us are out there paying attention to all this and um you know, I mean, if he wants to leave for greener pastures and he leaves the program in a better place than he found it, like more power to him. I mean I I'll be disappointed and I'll if he does it in a dick dickheadish way like Travis Ford did, I I may it may take me ten, twelve years to forgive him but that's maybe an indictment of my own psychology not not of his um view your drive says here's a question when was the last time umass had a philly player on the basketball roster philly is four and a half hours away does umass b-ball recruit hard in philly just because st joe's and LaSalle is here shouldn't make of a difference umass facilities and academics are superior to st joe's and LaSalle. I think a lot is made about getting kids in their, you know, from various cities and establishing pipelines and it can't hurt, but I don't think you need to like target Philly per se. I mean, what if like there's a great kid in Baltimore? What if there's a great kid, you know, like, is it worth getting a guy in your staff who's just like unbelievably connected in Philly versus Baltimore versus DC versus Newark versus New York versus uh, you know, 50 other places, I think it just doesn't matter. I mean, get kids where they come from, take shots on kids, recruit accordingly. But just think about how the recruiting process goes. Like if a guy's like, hey, what's up? Like I'm connected in Philly. You went to the same high school as me. We have a relationship, whatever. You should come here. If the kid wants to stay in Philly, he's going to stay in Philly. If he wants to get away, he might get away. So like, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we should emphasize Philly any more than anywhere else, but uh, I think we recruit nationally. You know, I mean, like, look at the last bunch of years. Seth Berger's from Washington State, and 
Malik Hines is from Louisiana or Mississippi rather. And, um, but yeah, the last Philly, Jesse Morgan was a Philly kid, if I'm not mistaken. So there's one, uh, Rashawn Holloway is like central Jersey, probably closer to Philly than any other major city. Um, so it's not like it's, you know, we've forgotten it. Um, any other questions? Nick Baker, 63 says, what players do you see exiting the program? Talked about that a bunch tonight. He says, what assistant coaches do you see ex- UMass targeting? Oh, uh, good question. I think people that match the mold, certainly of the first couple, and then I don't know about the third, but Bergeron, obviously. And then uh, there's another guy, somebody mentioned, a few people have actually sent me DMs about a guy named Jay Davids who runs the AAU program that Samba played for, and that is a UMass alum. I think. And so that's an interesting one. But it would be probably unusual to go with an AAU and a high school coach on your staff. You'd probably only go with one just because of the politics and the optics. But it remains to be seen. Um, I've been told by at least one source that the budget for assistance this time is around is a little higher, but I, I can't confirm that. Stu Ludicky, not a question. Good to finally meet you last Wednesday, he says, and it was great meeting you too, Stu. And then he says, a question. Which of the three currently committed freshmen do you think is the most A-10 ready, sees the most significant time in the rookie season? And the answer, I believe, is Preston Santos. He's athletic. He is a good, solid wing. I don't see him scoring a ton, but I think he'll be able to get on the court due to his athleticism and, and effort. W. Naheem says, will UMass basketball make the tournament under a McCall-led team? It's a great question. Gotta be honest, because let's say he makes the NIT next year. And let's say he makes the NIT the year after. He's probably trying to get out of there. And that's kind of likely that he'd make the NIT in one of the next two years. But whether or not he'd be able to jump ship after year four with two NIT appearances and two shitty seasons is maybe not the case. So then he has to make it in his fifth year. And I will choose to believe that, yes, he will make the the NCAA tournament. But I don't feel very confident about that. Craig O1918 says, what is the rumor and innuendo around not one, not two, but three assistants getting gas? I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. Um, I don't know. I have some theories. I have some theories that I don't really need to get into at this moment because it's almost midnight and it's largely conjecture. And it's hard to articulate the nuances of in this setting. But basically, I think once you're going to get rid of two, it's like, fuck it, blow the whole thing up. T. Davis, 418. Which of this year's transfers do you also see bolting? Uh, Cobb and possibly Laurent. Hope not. He says, oh, Gaber says, who will be there in a month? We've kind of already gone over that a bunch, actually. And then that may, yeah, wait, uh, wait. 
That may do it. That may do it. What if Trump were impeached, says Johnny Hammersticks. I don't know if that was to anything that I was asking. Yeah. Don't know. Alright, there's probably something else in here, but this has been like a relentless episode, and I'm fading. And I really hope you all enjoyed it, because I put some love into this one. As Cal would say, we love you. We will see you later in the offseason. Hopefully there will be lots of... Uh, interesting guests and some, you know, stuff outside the box a little bit like we did last off season. We'll talk a little UMass football. We'll, we'll be here. You know, we'll talk a little UMass hockey until that's over. And uh, we'll continue to follow, of course, the off season for UMass basketball. So uh, maybe I'll make it to the spring game too, by the way. Anyway, Bennett, you got anything to, uh, to, to leave the folks with? If you're in the Boston area and you're not at TD garden this weekend, uh, consider yourself dead. Uh, as a UMass fan. Yeah, get fucked. Get fucked. Um, So, yeah, we love you, and uh, be there, be square.